0: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply.
1: See site for details. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault.
1: Listener discretion is advised. All along the way, some things have happened that that they were out of desperation. It's better to let one bad person go than to ruin four people's lives by accusing them of something they didn't do.
0: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Beverly Lowry is an author in Austin, Texas, and a good friend. She's written a heartbreaking book called Who Killed These Girls? It's about the yogurt shop murders, which happened here when I was in high school, just a few miles from my house. It's a story about the wrongful conviction of four men and the devastated families of the victims. And no one feels like they've gotten
1: justice. In a very safe neighborhood, two girls... We're working at, and I can't believe it's yogurt shop, frozen yogurt shop up in Northwest Austin. They were closing up the shop, and one of the girls' sisters came to visit and be there to help close up the shop with a friend. The two girls working there were 17. The sister was 13, and her friend was 15. So four girls, the shop closes. The next thing we know about what happened is a policeman sees smoke coming out of the back of the strip mall. It's past 11 and everything's closed, everything's dark. And he found out it was the yogurt shop. He calls the fire department, fire department comes and sprays some 500 gallons of water. And one of the firemen trips over something, and he nudges the guy next to him and points down and says, is that a foot? At that point, the place is flooded. It's been burned. Front part is smoky, but but not damaged. So the fire hadn't been blazing that long when the policeman discovered it, and it was confined to that back room. And when they finally clear the air of smoke, they realize there are four dead, burned girls in the back of this frozen yogurt shop. All teenagers. All teenagers. The police are called, you know, homicide is called. So they're firemen, they're discovering this grotesque, horrible, horrible scene. John Jones was the lead homicide detective. He was on duty, and so he became the case agent for this case, which has earned the name of infamous title of the yogurt shop murders. He said he'd been a policeman 25 years, never seen anything like it. Clues were hard to come by. Anything was hard to come by. Because everything was contaminated between the water and the fire. Between the water and the fire. And John told me one time, cops hate fire and you can see why and he had actually dealt with another fire in which people were burned to death so it was not a pleasant recurrence for him
0: let's go back to that night so that was december 6 1991 right, right. Mm-hmm. if you're the cop where do you even start with this crime scene everything's contaminated. There are no immediate suspects. There's no witnesses, no cameras, I'm assuming. I mean, just no clues. Right.
1: This was 91. DNA had been used to solve crimes first in England in 1988. That's only three years before this happened just beginning to be used in the U.S. past couple of years. Hardly at all in a city like Austin. There was no CSI unit. And, you know, and the forensics unit was small and pretty inexperienced. But there was one connected to the highway department. John called there first because they did have forensic equipment to get DNA. So he consulted with them. They all agreed this was a thing to do. There was sexual assault involved with this case. There was. But they, of course, didn't know right away. There were just small amounts. They got these patchy samples, but didn't know how much good that would do or what they could draw from it. So you've
0: got four young women, teenagers, Mm -hmm. and we know at least three out of four
1: have been sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. What does that tell the police Multiple perpetrators? We left out an important point. They were also shot to death before they were burned. And they were tied up. They were made to kneel and take off their clothes. And, you know, there were things that were discovered, such as there had to be more than one. You can't hold the gun on somebody and tie them up at the same time.
0: One person likely pulled the trigger. Yes. Okay. One shot yeah. in the back of that yeah. shotgun, right? Oh, 22. Mm-hmm. Okay. This took time. Sexual assaults took time. Murders took time. Putting down an accelerant took time. They must have known, right, that these girls were going to be on on their own. They must not have been scared of the manager coming in. Is that kind of the way that the, the police were starting to think?
1: Yeah, I mean, they figured all that out pretty quickly. I mean, you saw the two cars. They were the only two cars in the parking lot. See, with the two girls, little Volkswagen bus and a small pickup truck. How close were they to closing? Closing. They were closing. And in fact, the front door was locked from the inside. And the the rules from the yogurt shop company were very specific of how to close. And the first thing they were to do was at ten of eleven to lock the front door. So if anybody's inside, they stay. If not, they lock it because they don't they want to start cleaning up. So at 10 of 11, they locked the door, and if you read the rules of how to clean up, you would know exactly at what point they were when they were disturbed. They were already in there, is the best guess. So if two men are there, two boys, two men, whatever they are, finishing up their drink or ice cream, you clean up around them. That's what happened. And The two youngest girls were already in the back washing dishes. That's where the big sink was. So they were in the storeroom. So what the intruders had to do was run the older girls back to the storeroom where they'd meet up with the other two. Not clear. They knew they were back there. You know, they could have been surprised. I mean, nothing about any of that's clear.
0: I grew up in this area. I went to that shop growing up. I was their age. I was 17 at the time in high school, that strip mall was pretty open. Mm-hmm. It's on a major street. Mm-hmm. So is the idea that these two guys pulled up a truck or a car, parked, did all of this, and then walked out the front
1: door? That seems crazy to me. No, they walked out the back door. Do they think they were parked back there? Maybe? That's what they think, but don't really know. The back door wasn't locked? In. Yeah.
0: You know, as a teenager in that time period, to feel that sort of vulnerability, it was difficult. Everybody was talking about it. Yeah. Let's get to the main four suspects who turn out to be high school students at a -hmm. a different high school from mine Mm -hmm. and
1: a different one from theirs also. They went to Lanier and the boys sometimes went to McAllen. They weren't regular attendees. The youngest one did Go to school.
0: Were these four teenagers the first stop, or were there other oh, suspects no, before?
1: There were suspects, and there were confessions, and there were tips that came in at like dozens and dozens and dozens. I forget; it's like fifty a day for a while. The
0: most fascinating is the Kenneth Allen McDuff. Can you summarize him? Uh, I'm Ugh. sure many of the people in this audience know Kenneth Allen McDuff is notorious serial killer. He
1: had been in Austin. Kenneth Allen McDuff was a serial killer, and he was as brutal serial killer as we've come by. Oh, if human beings can be a monster, he was one. This
0: seems like.
1: His kind of crime. I mean, what I said to Jones one time was, you go through all these stages of what happened, how did it happen, and then when you get to the who part, who could have done such a thing? And especially in something like this. And the answer was Kenneth McDuff. And I said to Jones one time, well, McDuff could have done it. And he said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he could have done it. Problem is, he didn't. Well, the DNA wasn't his, I'm presuming. DNA wasn't his, and he had an alibi, and he, it wasn't him. He was confessing to basically yeah. shooting Kennedy and everything else. But he didn't confess to this because he said, if I'd done it, I'd be proud. Oh, come on. <laughs> Nice. He was number one, and then there were others. Okay, so the yogurt shop was close to North Cross Mall. Mm-hmm. And North Cross Mall, at that time, was a place where kids hung out. Most popular mall, I think, I would
0: say. Yes. Yes. They
1: walked around. The Rocky Horror Picture Show played on the weekends at midnight. Great food court and ice skating rink and everything. Yeah. Yeah, the ice skating rink. The two younger girls had actually been there. That's where they were before they went to the yoga shop. Sister dropped them off, went back like a block and a half to her job at the yoga shop. And then they went and got the sister. They did not walk. She picked them up. A week later, two guys showed up in North Cross Mile, one only 15 and one 17 or so. They went up to the security guard and the younger one, who's a show-offy, kind of smart-alecky kid, showed the security officer who they knew the kid has a twenty-two tucked in his jeans belt and said, yeah, I got a gun, and I did those girls. So they <laughs> obligingly took them in, both boys, and took them to the Gardner Betts and kept them overnight. Tell me what that is. Juvenile detention. Because they were underage. Jones interviewed them, and they hadn't a clue. And they were just, as John said, Dudes without dates. They'd been hanging out, drinking beer all day, the day of the murders. Didn't go to school. And the one kid, the show-off kid, had a car that his father let him drive. So they drove around in the car, smoked weed, drank beer. John and all the cops, not just John, decided they were just showing off and gave the one kid tickets carrying a, a gun. And that was that for a few years. John was a, eventually diagnosed with PTSD for work in this case and not solving it. Wow. He grew very close to the parents, very close. And uh, apparently the police department thought too close, especially to the one couple.
0: Well, wait, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean it's calling them too often?
1: Or? Yeah, and he did this one thing. There were... Three Mexican citizens, male citizens, who were brought in at some point. They had been in Austin that night, and they were bad guys. They were dope dealers and rapists. They were not good citizens of either country. They thought this is it, and they were everybody's favorite candidate because they were bad guys. They weren't Americans, and yay, you know? Very convenient. Yeah really convenient. John stayed here and sent other cops down to interview these guys. They didn't know it was yogurt. They didn't know how old the girls, how many girls there were. They didn't do it. The cop who's standing there called John and said, John, these guys don't know anything. They've got it all wrong. And people still believed it. And parents of the youngest girl continued to believe that they were the guilty ones. And John took it upon himself to write the Mexican ambassador, I think, cover letter for this couple to sign saying, please bring, you know, these boys to justice. And that was improper. And that was over the top. You know, the city went crazy when they didn't find anybody. I'm sure the media pressure is oh, incredible. Yeah, and the mayor and everybody's saying, get these guys. Why can't you get these guys? So John's getting a divorce. He's losing his family, and he's not sleeping. He's under horrible, horrible stress. Not just that he can't solve it, but he can't solve it for the parents. And that's where everybody's remaining sympathy lay. I mean, these people, one mother, long divorced, and then two couples. Two couples, one of whom lost both of their daughters. Yes, so there were three sets of parents for the the four girls. And so John was taken off the case. I don't really know this. Nobody told me this, but I think it was convenient. Something they used, you know, this letter that he wasn't supposed to do. But they did it in a very sudden fashion. John never got over it. You
0: still talk to him?
1: Yep. Yeah. He lives in Colorado now, but actually heard from him this morning an email. He just calls it The Case, capital T, capital C, because I know what he's talking about. So they brought in a different guy who went back to this original arrest of the kid at North Cross Mall. I came by so much material on this case, an unbelievable amount of material, mainly because of John, who was bitter about his case being taken away. And he was then put down for having let these four boys go when they were arrested. And at some point, John said to me, I don't guess you'd like to see my files, would you? And I said, that might be nice, (laughs) (laughs) And he said, okay, so we met at a bagel shop, and he came with a big laundry basket, not just a regular size, but a giant size with hanging files in them, which I brought home and scanned. And all the police files were in there, I mean, down to the night of the crime, what time per second this happened, this happened, this happened.
0: Essentially, a disgraced cop gave you all of this information because he wanted to tell
1: his story. And because he was bitter. He was bitter because he didn't feel like these guys were guilty. He never thought they had done it. And he was shunted aside and given no credit for anything he had done. I guess he trusted me to actually do right by what he had, and he gave me everything, including the ATF guys' files, which he had. Some of this, a lot
0: of stuff, he probably shouldn't have had. Exactly, he should have turned in when he when he left. Exactly. The force.
1: So I knew I shouldn't have it. <laughs> so I got that, and then of the two defense lawyers, Carlos Garcia and Jim Sawyer, Jim was endlessly conversational and full of information, got me interviews with one of the guys who went to prison. Carlos Garcia was the other boy's defense lawyer, and Carlos was the keeper of papers. He kept everything. He would just give them to me.
0: Because you had had established a good relationship with these people.
1: I went to Carlos one time. He told me how the second cop, head cop, Paul Johnson, had worked by nailing the suspect he wanted and proving he did it, you know, starting with the end, inductive reason, and making it work. And he said, oh, they had a meeting, they had a meeting, and he said, I shouldn't give you this, but they fucked me over, so I'm just gonna fuck them back. So, in this meeting, Paul Johnson starts with a drawing, so maybe there was an actual photograph, and Maurice was in the middle, and here were like rays of sunshine going out to his accomplices, to what he had done, you know to the gun in the in the mall and everything. So they made it work. They brought in one guy first, Mike Scott, who's not a brilliant guy. And he loved the cops. And like a lot of confessors, he wanted to give them what they wanted. And they interrogated him for 22 hours, not straight, but over the course of a couple of days. And he would say, you know, guys, I don't think I did this. And they'd say, oh, yeah, you were there. So they started with him, and he finally said, well, I guess I did it. You can actually see this guy, like, disappear, (laughs) Under these questions, the last straw was, what did you tie these girls up with? And Mike Scott says, Venetian blind cords? Gosh. And the cop says, not Venetian blind. So it's like 20 questions until he finally says, their clothes? Now you got
0: it. What we know now is Innocence Project says that almost 30% of wrongful conviction overturned cases are because of false
1: confessions. Right. We
0: know people do it. Right, Why are their parents not getting involved? Troublemaker kids, I guess. They're is-
1: troublemaker kids. They Both Mike Scott and Rob Springsteen have divorced parents, and Mike's parents had a lot of problems, a whole lot of problems. And Rob's parents were divorced and they were trying to work with him, but he kept getting in trouble. Stealing and threatening and, and they fit the profile. They in fit some the ways. profile. Yeah. So they had these two confessions and everybody thought that was it. The mayor said the minute they were arrested, Austin's long nightmare is over. Like, okay, we got him. Now they hadn't been on trial, but everybody wanted this thing solved the memory of those four young, smart, good citizen white girls. Where are we in time when these
0: four boys are arrested?
1: It's almost six years later. So after Mike Scott confessed and said Rob Springsteen was there, they start out with an interrogation of Springsteen because they think they're partners. Mike starts off kind of sitting back in his chair and relaxing and asking for Dr. Pepper instead of a Coke, you know, and saying, I want to do right by you guys. These boys end
0: up becoming convicted. Two of them, yeah. Two are convicted. Mm -hmm. What ends up happening with all four of them?
1: The second two guys, Forrest Welburn, was the youngest. He's a big, sweet, innocent kid. They asked him some question, and he said, I'm not a reader. I don't read much. I'm dumb. He says that. And finally, when one cop was really pushing him hard and being a terrible interrogator, actually, because he he finally said, if you can't tell me what you did, then you can just leave. And and Forrest said, okay. And he (laughs) left. (laughs) He was never... Indicted, Mars Pierce was indicted, but he would never yield to the questioning. They still thought he was the ringleader, and thought eventually, once they got the first two guys in prison, they would turn on him. Yeah, turn on him, flip him. Never did.
0: Why was there stronger evidence against Rob Springsteen? And because they confessed. That was it. It was totally based on the confess. Nothing
1: else. They tried the two guys and figured they'd get to Maurice eventually. In the trial, they brought Rob Springsteen to trial first. Rob had an unfortunate look about him. One of the parents said to me, he was evil. You could see it. Just look at those eyes. And he refused to dress up in a tie the way defendants are often coached to do. And so they tried him first. The DNA didn't match his. The DNA didn't match any of the four guys. They had nothing on these guys except their confession.
0: And you know what's surprising to me in this case? You know, having two people pull off this crime seems unusual enough, a, a team. Mm-hmm. But the idea that they could actually, whoever really did this, could keep their mouths shut Right. together. That takes a real commitment to each other as partners in this crime. How would that ever work
1: with four young men? Mike Scott did include the other three guys, his pals. He said, yeah, well, Rob was with me, and I think he was the one that tied him up. You know, he would imagine what happened. So they went to West Virginia where Rob was, interrogated him, and started with, your friend Mike has already told us you were there.
0: So he knows he's already behind the eight ball to begin with.
1: Right, but all they have is two confessions. They need to corroborate the prosecutor, head prosecutor, goes to the judge and, you know, in court, asked to be allowed to use Mike Scott's confession as proof that Rob Springsteen was involved in this. The defense attorney for Mike Scott is not about to let him get on the stand and get cross-examined. And so they have a cop read it out. The judge asked for a number of exclusion censorships that he thought would make it okay. So you've got a case where the only evidence is a questionable tactic. That's how the guys got out because the Texas State Court of Appeals, which pretty much turns down every appeal that comes to them, they did not turn these down because it was just too obvious. Wow. That this was unconstitutional. So it's a huge mistake. They had to dismiss the cases. They tried everything they could. They got new DNA, you know, more sophisticated, which worked against the prosecution.
0: And that is a big roll of the dice when they do that. We'll use a different type of test right. that's more sophisticated. Well, then you're risking excluding the suspects that you're trying to...
1: to Right. And the lawyers, they were furious about the way their clients had been treated, obviously. They had to go before a judge and request using their own company to test the DNA.
0: Private company rather than a state lab.
1: Exactly. And they were allowed... Have you been able to talk to
0: the family of any of the young
1: women? Talk at length with the mother of the two girls. The mother of Eliza talked to me for a little while. She was convinced that the two guys had done it. And this was when they were appealing and she would say things like, what rights do they have? She was convinced these boys did it. And because
0: they confessed or because yeah. she
1: wanted... She's the one who said you could see they were evil, uh, Robin in particular. And one time she said, uh, actually it was Barbara, it was the mother of the two girls. I was with both the mothers. And Barbara said, I've never asked you, do you think those four guys killed our girls? And it was something I had put off saying to Barbara because... I had gotten close to her, and at that point, I wasn't sure. I was getting to be, <laughs> but I wasn't sure. She apologized later to me because she knew. It, it puts you in a hard position. Yep, yeah, and so I answered around it and said, I'm not sure, or something to that effect. Maria said, well, I am, and never spoke to me again. Oof. But I talked to Barbara at length. She was the spokesperson of the parents. She was able to stand in front of a camera and talk. The mothers of the youngest girl just didn't didn't want to talk. I mean, they said a few things to reporters, but not much. They were not being interviewed, and I just... I felt like I wanted to leave them alone. (laughs) You don't want to be that reporter knocking on the door. I didn't. I didn't. And the youngest girl was killed because she was spending the night out of the home with the other two girls who were killed, the sisters. And so apparently there was some feeling of if Barbara had gone to pick them up. And so I just left them alone.
0: It sounds like there's a lot of either real or sort of made up Accusations or assumptions of parents being involved, yep. not being involved enough, kids having too much freedom, not enough supervision. Does that sound right to you? That oh yeah, have, like, that is a storyline that's swirled around. Absolutely. This case.
1: I talked to a young girl; she was about sixteen, who lived close by the yogurt shop, and she played a part in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know, they use real people to act out the parts. And she would sneak out every weekend night of her window, and she walked right by the yogurt shop that night, on that Friday night when this happened. Notice that the lights were still on, because the Rocky Art Picture Show came on at midnight. So this was past 11, lights were still on. That's all she saw. But I talked to her, and I talked to her about just the yogurt chop. She didn't say this, but her mother said, I was just so glad my daughter didn't have to work. I mentioned that to Barbara in quiet, subtle way, more subtle than that. And she said, we work, we build things. That's who we are. You know, Mm -hmm. they raised animals. Uh, Eliza raised pigs. The two girls raised sheep. And they paid for the feed and all. And they worked to do that. And so it's certainly, you can understand people questioning that. At the same time, parents have a hard time, you know. We have a hard time thinking how far to go, especially when kids get to be that old. I worked at a radio station from the time
0: I was 15. My mom and I were just talking about it. I was 15 or 16, and I would arrive at the radio station on my own off of a breaker lane, at six in the morning, every Saturday morning, by myself. Yeah, totally
1: by myself in this building. Nobody else is with me. It just it depends on circumstances and my sense. I mean, there's some really bad parents out there, of course, but a lot of times people are trying, and the kids are trying, you know, and they're failing. That's a good job. Yeah, I
0: mean, you're inside. Mm-hmm. You're you know, you're in an established business. They're paid well. Their friends get to come in and out. Who would have thought? To me, where this shop is positioned really prominently, as far as I'm concerned, I would just not think this would be the ideal target. Absolutely
1: not. And it was Governor Ann Richards' yogurt shop. You know, she shopped there. The whole crime was thought of here as not this city and not this neighborhood. The title of your book is Who Killed These Girls? Mm -hmm. What do you think? There was a story in the Austin Chronicle. Jordan Smith was a reporter for the Chronicle, and she was good. She did not let opinions stand in her way of writing about the yogurt shop murders because she thought the DA and the prosecutor were way off base, and she said so in print. But on the 20th anniversary of these murders, so that would be 2001, Mm -hmm. there was a cover story in the um, austin chronicle with a drawing of two men sitting at a yoga shop table now one of the revelatory moments for me was with carlos garcia and his legal assistant the picture photograph police photograph of the interior of the yogurt shop, the tables. Jennifer, one of the girls, was cleaning the tables when her work was interrupted. Shops closed. All the tables, the napkin holder has been refilled and the tables wiped, except a booth. No napkins, no cleaning. And it's the last booth before the cash register. So it's like the farthest from the front door. Beside the cash register, there is a paper, soda glass with a straw in it. One couple was there shortly before the place was locked up. They were sitting in the next booth. And the woman was facing the window in front. The husband or the boyfriend was facing the other way. And that woman was a really good witness. I mean, you know, witnesses aren't always dependable. She was very careful. She looked in the window and saw the reflection of these two guys sitting in that booth. And they were hanging out. And she said, I'm not even sure they had anything to eat or drink. And she described them as big and one had on a puffy down vest or jacket. And the couple said, let's leave. They're cleaning up. They were regulars and they knew one of the girls just from shopping there. So they left, leaving these two guys there. And I think they did it. I mean, you know, very little money was there. They'd already deposited the day's deposit and it wasn't about money. So it may have been what's called a crime of opportunity. And they could have been transients driving through and saying, I want to do this.
0: And she couldn't describe them any better than what you just told me? Not a
1: lot. I mean, she was seeing the reflection in a glass. So that was it. And the boyfriend didn't have much of anything. So the Chronicle had front page drawing of the two guys as she described them. And it's picture them sort of, you know, leaning on the table. And she said, this woman said they were talking, and she noted them as a little strange. They could be dead. (laughs) People say to me, you know, I know who those guys are, and they did it. And then nothing comes of it. And so I've pretty much given up that anything's going to ever be found. John Jones said, I asked him that very question one time. I said, do you think this will ever be solved? You know, cops tend to be pretty skeptical. (laughs) He said, oh yeah, oh yeah. Why, why did he think? I don't know. I still don't know. What I do know is he's not over it any more than the parents are. They still have DNA sample to work with if they they do? I don't know what's happened to that. That was very odd. I was thinking about that. There was a story, it was before March 15th (laughs) because we were still out in the world. So a match had come up a guy in Florida, but privacy concerns didn't allow the FBI to release it. And I talked to one of the lawyers, said, you know, this could be the 19th cousin.
0: I was going to ask you about that, if they've considered the forensic
1: genealogy aspect of this. I did talk to the sister-in-law of the, the youngest child who was killed, who had been very hostile to me, I sent everybody a book, you know, all the parents and the brother of this young girl and his wife. I talked to his wife. She's pretty hostile to me because she thought, you know, they had the killers. And I was wrong. And I indicated that I didn't think they had done it. And she changed when she saw that DNA story because it's the only match they've ever. When they came out with a story, they'd had this DNA. Austin had had this DNA for some months, but hadn't released the news, the information. When I talked to Jones, I said, did you know anything about this? And he said, no, must be a tight DA's race.
0: A little cynical about trying to use it politically, I guess,
1: then, right? And it was a tight DA's race because of other issues, as I'm sure you know. And she lost. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. But now that it's been, what, nine months? I think maybe he um, was right that they brought out the news because Margaret Moore had done some work in this case. And apparently, I'm told, she was working on perhaps releasing these guys because this hangs over them. I mean, Rob Springsteen has not only an unfortunate face, but name. <laughs> So anytime he applies for a job, and he's in West Virginia, he's from there. And so his name is known there. And even Mike Scott, his wife told me that if he goes for a job, you know, they look up records, they find him. And this hangs over them. How long were they in custody? They were in a little under 10 years. That's including county. So they haven't been exonerated. They could be... Mm-hmm. Arrested again. Mm-hmm. And where is everybody now?
0: I know that you, you kind of hinted at something happened more with Maurice Maurice
1: Pierce. Pierce was on his way to his sister's house. He was on the way home from a job at night. It was Christmas Eve's Eve. And he didn't stop at a stop sign. A it said, by the cops, and the cops pulled him over. There's a cop and a uh, rookie who was in training, and the more experienced cop was young, and he had not been on the yogurt shop for was not here when any of it was going on. So he said he had no idea who Maurice Pierce was or his license plate was, but, you know, the cops still wanted him as long as they thought these four guys did it. They pulled him over, and Maurice had a temper. He was hot-headed, and he got out. The cop tried to taser him, and he pulled the cop's utility knife out of his, I think he was in his boot, and slashed him in the throat of... And the cop was able to rise up and shoot him dead. So he was running. His sister heard the shot, knew Maurice was coming home. And she said to her husband, I think that's Maurice. So he was killed. So he's dead. Forrest Welburn, Rob Springsteen remarried. He'd been married once and lives in West Virginia. And Mike Scott works where he can work. He's divorced. His wife said we couldn't last through when Mike went through, she was very stalwart behind him, but they lived in Oklahoma for a while. But uh, I don't, I think she's still there. I talked to him. Actually, I just wanted to send him a book. And he said he didn't want a book. He said, I don't want nothing to do with Austin or anything to do with it ever again. Forrest was from Lockhart, he had a car shop over there. So I found him through Facebook. <laughs> And called him. He talked to me a couple of times. And I said, you know, some new things have come up. Will you talk to me? And he agreed to meet me at a coffee shop. And I waited at the coffee shop for like an hour and a half. And he never showed up. And I talked to his lawyer afterwards and he said, I'm not surprised. And I wasn't either, hmm. you know. And I think he thought, well, what do I have to gain by talking to her or anybody else? About this. The reverberations of this case just go through everybody. Absolutely. Do you think most people in Austin who know this case still think that these four guys? I think a great number of them do. You know, you've studied crime and punishment, and you know this. People want an answer. And if an answer is provided, they will accept it so that they can stop thinking about it. Who killed these girls? which was on a billboard, that's where I got the title. A sign company gave free billboard space to a sign saying who killed these girls and a picture of each of the four girls on it. And many people have said every day when I went to work, I passed that sign and it broke my heart all over again. On the next episode of Wicked Words.
0: When they get back there, Mr. Mortimer says, That's my wife. And he sinks to his
1: knees. He tries to wipe the blood off her face. And she's still alive. When he started talking to her and said, we're here, we'll help you, she was flailing her arms around like she was trying to push someone away.
0: If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com/ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.